An army cannot be built without repression. The commander will always find it necessary to place the soldier between the possibility that death lies ahead and the certainty that it lies behind. Leon Trotsky. Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 186, The Russian Civil War. Here come the whites. Last time, we began our discussion of the events at the start of the Russian Civil War. Now we continue things starting after the assassination attempt on Vladimir Lenin. As I mentioned last episode, the attempt on Lenin's life had a major effect on the lives of the Russian people because of the start of the Red Terror. Fanny Kaplan had been accused of the crime, but Bruce Lockhart and Sidney Riley, both British spies, were certainly part of the plot. Lockhart was actually imprisoned at Lubyanka, but was eventually released in a prisoner exchange. The Red Terror that was unleashed coincided with the forced food requisitions, which began to anger the peasants and cause unrest in the cities. Food was scarce, and the people who raised the animals and grew the grains had no incentive to do either. They starved either way, so they began a mass slaughter of all animals, millions of them, and stopped growing food. The Bolsheviks sent out armed groups to force the farmers to grow the food and to take whatever they found, as well as shoot anyone who hesitated. Many were killed, but along with the peasants, many Bolsheviks were murdered as well. This forced war communism was causing great consternation in Russia and within the Bolshevik party itself. Men like Nikolai Bukharin warned Lenin that he was leaning too hard on the peasants and that the whole revolution could unravel if he didn't ease up. At first, Lenin bristled at the suggestion and began to blame a whole class of people for the problems, namely the kulaks in the middle class, also known as the bourgeoisie. In his speeches, Lenin was quite clear what the solution to the food problem was. Quote, A wave of kulak revolts is sweeping across Russia. The kulak hates the Soviet government like poison and is prepared to strangle and massacre hundreds of thousands of workers. We know very little that if the kulaks were to gain the upper hand, they would ruthlessly slaughter hundreds of thousands of workers. In alliance with the landowners and capitalists, restore backbreaking conditions for the workers, abolish the eight-hour day, and hand back the mills and factories to the capitalists. These bloodsuckers have grown rich on the want and suffering by the people in the war. They have raked in thousands and hundreds of thousands of rubles by pushing up the price of grain and other products. These leeches have sucked the blood of the working people and grown richer as the workers in the cities and factories starved. So we declare ruthless war on the kulaks. Death to them. The workers must crush the revolts of the kulaks with an iron hand. This call to arms deflected the real cause of famine and blamed a specific group of people who were in all likelihood not in the camp of the Bolsheviks. The poorest peasants were given free reign in murdering those with more money than them and hundreds of thousands would pay with their lives. Problem was, the people they were killing were the most efficient at growing food and raising animals. This did not solve the problem, but compounded it. The inability to feed the people was to put the Bolshevik Revolution in great jeopardy, which was also the reason why the white armies began to make progress against the Reds. Lenin would see a solution to this issue, but before we get to that, we need to step back and see where the fighting was taking place and who was winning. 
World War I was over. The Germans left Ukraine and other territories that they won after the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. Poland was declared independent, and Admiral Alexander Kolchak became the supreme ruler of his white forces in Omsk. Kolchak's army overthrew the Socialist Revolutionaries on November 17th, so we have arrived in December of 1918. The Reds have a few major allies, which includes the powerful Latvian Rifle Division of near 20,000 men, as well as the sailors from Kronstadt. The industrial workers who were members of the many Soviets were the core of the Red Guard. Admiral Kolchak and his army, though, was on the move. His group began to take control of large swaths of the Urals, starting in January 1919. General Denikin had taken over the volunteer army from Generals Alexiev and Kornilov and moved into Ukraine. Things were looking up for the Whites. The Whites didn't have the equipment and, more importantly, the manpower to succeed. They actually had many units of their armies with more officers than actual fighting soldiers. And if I had to use one word to describe the White Army, it would be, again, uncoordinated. They had no real plan. By the end of 1919, the civil war between the Reds and the Whites was effectively over. Yes, there were still pockets of resistance, but they were small and the Red Army was more than capable of handling them. But this was not the end of the Civil War. Oh no, there was more to come. As Robert Service puts it in his book, A History of Modern Russia, quote, This outcome of the war between the Reds and the Whites determined the rest of most of the many armed conflicts elsewhere in the former Russian Empire. and the Transcaucasus, the Georgians contended against the Armenians. The Armenians also fought the Azeris. And each state in the region had internal strife. For example, battles and massacres occurred in Georgia between Georgians and Abkhazanians. Consequently, the armed struggle in the lands of the Romanov dynasty was never merely a Russian civil war. Indeed, it was not just one civil war at all. There were dozens of civil wars after 1917. Wars in which the Red Army was able to intervene after its defeat of Kolchak, Denikin, and Udenich. There were more than regional wars because there were numerous rebellions of the peasants because of Lenin and the war communist economy. Some of these rivaled the rebellions of Pugachev and Stenkarazin in the 17th and 18th century. To quote Martin Sixsmith in his book, Russia, A Thousand-Year Chronicle of the Wild East, Quote, from 1918 onwards, the regime's brutality was met with armed resistance. The peasants murdered 15,000 members of the Bolshevik food brigades. One community impaled their decapitated heads on spikes until a bombardment by government artillery raised the entire village to the ground. Escalating unrest in the Tambov region, 300 miles southeast of Moscow, culminated in the formation of a 70,000-strong peasant army prepared to fight for freedom and the right to the land. Over a period of nearly two years, the rebellion spread to vast areas of southeastern Russia, recalling the great revolts of Razin and Pugachev. It took 100,000 troops and poison gas to massacre the rebels as they hid in the forests with survivors and their families consigned to the growing network of prison camps. What we have isn't a civil war based on ideologies or states' rights or slavery. 
It was for the most part a civil war for life. People wanted to live a life where they could feed themselves and their families, which is something the Bolsheviks couldn't care less about. But they would have to, as these insurrections threatened Lenin's fledgling government far more than the white armies could. By 1921, famine had broke out throughout Russia, and it's estimated that over 10 million people were to die due to hunger. Novelist Philip Gibbs writes, quote, The harvest had been annihilated by two terrible droughts, and the reserves of grain, which had always been kept by the peasants, had been used to feed the Red Army. There were 25 million people threatened by starvation, and many were dead and dying. I went into cottages where a whole family would be lying down to die. I really saw some terrible sights, which filled my heart with pity for a great people. The children looked like fairy tale children, and it was most pitiful to see them dying of hunger with their stomachs swollen out. Before we go back to Lenin's answer to this problem at hand, I want to cover an interesting leader in the Russian Civil War, and that is Nestor Makhno and his anarchist Black Army. An Nestor Makhno's revolutionary insurrectionary army of Ukraine was a powerful fighting force that was both anti-Bolshevik and anti-white, but they did tend to work with the Bolsheviks on t at times, but not with the whites ever. What they wanted was to set up an anarchist regime in Ukraine, free from government intervention. It was a noble idea, but one that has not been shown to be very realistic. I say this because I actually studied anarchism in college under Professor Paul Average. And you may have heard me mention his name in the past as my Russian history professor. But he also taught a class on anarchism, which was extremely popular, as well as having written a number of books about the subject. He even wrote a chapter on Makhno, which you can find if you look up Makhno on Wikipedia, and that's M-A-K-H-N-O, and look to the bottom of the page upon where it says under further reading, and you'll see a link to the chapter that you can read for yourself. Makhno was at one time, as Professor Average puts it, quote, for more than a year, he was a greater power on the steppe than either Trotsky or Denikin. He fought against both sides, but his initial success in the context of the Russian Civil War was to plow into the rear of General Denikin's army, effectively stopping their attempt to rout the Reds. The blacks succeeded with the cooperation of Trotsky via Lenin's order, because Trotsky did not like them. Although, after winning this battle, Lenin and Trotsky conspired to have Makhno arrested, or better yet, assassinated. He was viewed as a greater threat to the Bolsheviks than even the whites. Going back to Professor Average, quote, On November 25, 1920, Makhno's commanders in the Crimea, fresh from their victory over Wrangel, were seized by the Red Army and shot. The next day, Trotsky ordered an attack on Makhno's headquarters in Gulya Polya, during which Makhno's staff were captured and imprisoned or shot on the spot. The Bakhto himself, however, together with a remnant of an army that once numbered in the tens of thousands, managed to elude his pursuers. After wandering over the Ukraine for better part of a year, the guerrilla leader, exhausted and suffering from unhealed wounds, crossed the Dniester River into Romania 
and eventually found his way to Paris. Makhno's army has been accused of being anti-Semitic and having committed atrocities while fighting in Ukraine. But from what Dr. Average saw in the archives and the evidence we have, this is likely a Bolshevik case of alternative facts. Makhno was against discrimination and many of his commanders were actually Jewish. The betrayal of the Black Army by the Bolsheviks was a common legacy. They did this with the Mensheviks as well as the social revolutionaries. Stalin was to use the same tactics against the Bolsheviks themselves as evidenced by the Great Purge of the late 1930s. You'll see shortly another example. Now's the time to start getting back to Lenin's solution to the famine and the peasant rebellions, as well as the growing unrest within the cities and even supporters of the Bolsheviks. The key moment was the second Kronstadt rebellion, this time in 1921. There were 30,000 sailors, many who helped start the Russian Revolution in 1917 when they killed their czarist commanders and helped the Bolsheviks take the Winter Palace in November of that same year. They were becoming terribly disillusioned with Lenin and the fact that the local Soviets were not democratically run anymore, but by an elite dictatorship. This was not what they came into the revolution for. Here is an excerpt from a manifesto that scared Lenin to his core. Quote, the working class expected the revolution to bring freedom, but it has bought enslavement whose horrors far exceed those of czarism. The power of the monarchy, with its police and gendarmes, had passed into the hands of the communist usurpers, who have given the people not freedom, but the constant fear of torture by the Cheka. The communists have inflicted moral servitude to even forcing the people to think the way they want them to. Through the state control of the trade unions, they have chained the workers to their new machines so that the labor is no longer a source of joy, but a new form of slavery. To the protests of the peasants expressed in spontaneous uprising and those of the workers whose living conditions have compelled them to strike, they have answered with mass executions and a bloodletting that exceeds even that inflicted by the czarist generals. The Russia of the proletariat, the first to raise the red banner of liberation, is now drenched in blood. Lenin had the Kronstadt rebellion brutally crushed without mercy. The Red Army lost 10,000 men, but the sailors lost 15,000, with the rest fleeing to Finland. Days later, Lenin decided to counter the growing rebellious fervor in Russia with his announcement to the party congress that, quote, the new economic policy that we are introducing today is a substantial one. It will last a long time. He further went on to say, Comrade peasants, today we announce openly, honestly, with no deception, in order to maintain the march towards socialism, we are making a whole series of concessions to you. There will be limits, but you will be told what these are so you can judge for yourself. No longer would the Reds take all of the grains produced by the peasant farmer. Instead, they would have to give the state a fixed amount and let them sell off whatever was over that to the open market. As you might expect, bumper crops ensued. This is one of those important turning points in history, as it has been theorized that had Lenin not introduced the NEP policy, he might have lost the Russian Civil War because the hatred of the people was so great and the food shortage so severe 
that the Bolsheviks could not have maintained their control over the country, no matter how brutal the terror they tried to impose. But before you think that the brutal repression of opposing viewpoints was also eased, think again. Instead, Lenin insisted that, quote, there must be an immediate dissolution of all dissenting groups that have been formed based on the basis of some platform or another. He goes on to say, failure to comply with the Congress resolution will result in unconditional and immediate expulsion from the army. If you really think about it, this statement is chilling. It would later set the stage for Stalin and his show trials just a decade later. This is where I'm going to leave things today. Join me next time when we wrap up the Russian Civil War and look back at its effect on Russia and the Soviet Union. So now, as always, das vidanya i spasiba bolshoya.